Hello, everyone. Welcome back to IXDA Stories, offering stories of the Interaction Design Association by the community for the community. Each episode this season, we'll be taking a deep dive with some of the thought leaders and partners of the upcoming Interaction 21 conference. I'm your host, Alexi Morin. Today, we're joined by David Brin, a multi-award-winning science fiction author and doctoral degree-holding astrophysicist. When he's not writing, to use his own words, spectacular Maserati-level delusions, David brings his plausible and well-rounded fictions to organizations with the hope of preventing destructive, speculative futures from becoming reality. Let's listen as Poppy Guthrie, a member of the Interaction 21 team and local leader, sits down with David to discuss sci-fi, modern politics, speculative futures, and positive-sum games. I just wanted to kind of warm up a little bit by um, asking how, like, how did you get into what you're doing now? Um, like, and, and maybe just talking about something that we might not pick up from the bio. Um, I always knew I would be a writer. Really? A family of writers. But the, um, the thing is that I thought I could escape, escape into science. Science fiction authors are actually much more interested in history than in science. The field should have been named speculative history. Because you're speculating about alternate pasts, alternate presents, or a continuation of the story, the only interesting story, and that is humanity climbing up through horrible mistakes and errors and standing on each other's shoulders to, to get to the point where we might be ready to launch to the stars. It is based upon the fact that it, it's the greatest of all stories, and so that's what science fiction often is about. It's about alternates or projected futures, and science is a driver of change, and therefore science plays a large role in a lot of science fiction. But only one in ten science fiction authors are scientifically trained, as I am. Some of the best hard scientific science fiction is written by uh, former English majors who couldn't um, parse a differential equation in 20 years if their lives depended on it. They write fantastic scientific science fiction because they've learned the technique, and that is you can get all the advice you need for the price of pizza and beer at a nearby university. Or you don't even have to pay for the pizza and beer. They'll pay for it if you'll just name a character after you. So um, in any event, I was fascinated by history. And then across all of history, the same mistakes were made over and over and over again. And only one civilization ever tried to develop clades of people who got past human delusion, believing not what we want to think is true, but what is true or better yet, hasn't been disproved, because that's what science can do. Science can disprove stuff that science can never prove anything, but it can disprove things. And I wanted to be part of that. I wanted desperately to be part of that. And so I wound up going to Caltech for my undergraduate education. So I must have had some ability in science. I wound up getting a PhD at UCSD, astrophysics, 
I still am involved with NASA. But really, when you get right down to it, you are what you were born to be. And I was born to be a liar. I tell fantastic stories about people who never existed doing things that never happened. Rooted, it's rooted in in history and in your knowledge and understanding of the oh there's oh, I, I definitely believe in trying to make my fictions well-grounded uh i think it makes them more plausible and much more interesting i have a huge uh, predictive score that even though science fiction authors will deny being in the prediction business we're not we're in the prevention business what sorts of things are you thinking about preventing now? I guess you had mentioned that science fiction is trying to dissuade from the mistakes of the past and project into the future. So I'm wondering what kinds of mistakes do you see humanity making now? Well, letting, letting emotion and subjective reality overcome our ability to check on whether or not the things we believe are actually true. Pandering to the mythology that your type of people is the best type of people. We're all programmed inside that tribalism. So it's been very easy for cynical oligarchs and conspirators to um, flatter whole swathes of the population by saying, you're part of a, the, the, the minority who really gets it really knows what's going on. And of course, usually they don't. Look, Hollywood preaches four great moral lessons, and they have been very good for us. One is suspicion of authority. You cannot name a popular film that you've enjoyed in the last 20 years, or in your case, 15, that um, didn't revolve around the overcoming of some abusive authority figure. Now, it may be alien invaders or a mother-in-law, but there's always some kind of authority to resist. That helps you identify with the main character. There's also tolerance, diversity, and eccentricity. Protagonist in a popular novel or movie usually exhibits eccentric traits right at the beginning, and that helps the audience to bond with them. And here's the thing. It doesn't have to be the audience member's particular eccentricity. The fact that they are eccentric and standing up for their own individuality helps the audience to bond with them. Now, that was not the case in none of these four were preached by prior mythic systems. We have a lot in common with the prior mythic systems, the Joseph Campbell arc of the hero and things like that. But those principal messages are fairly unique. And they're part of the reason why we've had this Paracleum experiment has been somewhat so vastly successful. But here's the problem. Those lessons from Hollywood can be used against us. Under normal circumstances, in normal times, the difference between a decent Democrat and a decent Republican is which direction they think elites are trying to become Big Brother. The Republican is concerned about snooty academics and faceless government bureaucrats. The Democrat is concerned about conniving aristocrats, oligarchs, and faceless corporations. But in normal times, each of us would be willing to admit, well, you know, I'm less concerned about the corporations and aristocrats, but I, I guess in theory they could be dangerous too. So while I'm fighting the bureaucrats, you go ahead and shine light on the, on the oligarchs and the corporations. 
That's how this would be synergistic. And in normal times, there's some of that. But it's all, the well has been utterly poisoned. So what we have instead is my side's elites are absolutely pure and virtuous. How dare you say anything bad about them? Your side's elites are already big brother. It happens that one of those two sides is more accurate than the other right now. The deeper phenomenon of a deliberately stoked radicalization that has destroyed the ability of this mythic system to propel pragmatic problem solving. Problems like climate, like environment, that are poisoning our environment that have brought down previous civilizations. Problems like the wasting of talent, racism and sexism. See, you don't have to fight racism and sexism based upon yammering, you know, chiding moral grounds. Yes, those moral grounds are absolutely valid, but you don't have to. All you have to do is raise the simple fact that you're wasting talent. And that is a pragmatic Adam Smithian justification for most liberal programs. How do you see speculative fiction speculative designers or designers in general playing a role in helping to overcome these problems that we're facing from your perspective? I guess, what role do you think it plays? Human beings are fundamentally delusional. I make money off that because I create industrial grade, high quality Maserati Lamborghini level delusions. I sell them and, and, and do very well by it. But always there's a warning label saying this is for fun and possibly a warning, possibly inspiration even, but it's delusional. This is the source of our greatest art. But the problem is when delusion moves into public policy and the governance of the civilization, you get this horrible litany of errors called history. And most human societies were shaped like a pyramid with a few lords and kings and priests at the top. And what was their top priority? It came even before fighting each other. Crush critics. Prevent the only thing that can penetrate delusion. And that might lead to decent governance, but it might also lead to them losing their power. Criticism is the only known antidote to error. Cetokate. I'll repeat it. Criticism is the only known antidote to error and delusion. The problem is we hate it. Oh, we don't mind dishing it out, but we hate criticism. We hate receiving it. And the irony being, it is the only thing that can help you to perfect your craft, your plans, your products, and your ability to defeat your enemies. Because criticism is what will find your errors before you commit them. It's the only thing that does. It's a very good reason to get married. Every now and then, it's nice to have a critic who's on your side. But if necessary, you can take, take the criticism from the people who are most eager to dish it out to you, your enemies. And if you take criticism from your enemies and take careful notes and pay them respectful attention, first off, it will bug the hell out of them. So you get an immediate short-term satisfaction. Secondly, they are very likely going to be pointing out things that you hadn't thought of that you can improve. The most galling thing you can possibly say to one of your enemies is, gee, thanks, I hadn't thought of a couple of these. No, most of them, you're an idiot. 
But these three, you know what? I'm going to fix these. And, and thanks a lot because it'll make me better able to defeat you. That is what is called a win-win. There is no greater concept to define the, our civilization than the positive sum game. You know what a positive sum game is? It's the most important concept. It's a game in which the sum of the points that are won by the winners and losers is positive. You might have heard the phrase, a rising tide lifts all boats. Yes. A positive sum game is one in which even if you lose, everybody wins. It's just that the person who did, or company or political party or whatever who defeated you won a bit more. And that's what's supposed to happen. Pericles, in his funeral oration in Thucydides, talks sort of about how competitively and adversarially people can achieve positive sum games as long as they agree on a cooperative context. So cooperation and competition nestle with each other. One is sterile without the other. We cooperate to create rules for arenas like markets, democracy, science, justice courts. And the clearest example is sports, where adversarial action is very rigidly regulated in ways that maximize the output in sports, excitement without inju- with less injury and cheating. Supposedly, we're going to get a positive sum outcome from the recent election. <laughs> it's just they aren't letting us have any exact moment. It's just coming in dribbles. Indeed. But you get my point. A zero-sum game is one in which I win by making you lose. We're in a negative-sum game because uh, basically there are parties in this nation who, um, if they can't win, they'll tear everything down. So it's a negative-sum way of thinking. Right now, there's all sorts of poison pills being played, and it'll be, there'll be more and more of them in the next 50 days. So this audience is in a, an interesting position, being people on the ground, designing the products, having influence in the technology that um, we use as societies to run our lives in, in various ways. So what's your message for them being in that position of soft power, maybe some direct power? I suppose the most important thing is to maintain an ability to question assumptions. And it's one of the most difficult thing to do because an assumption by its very nature is something that you assume, take it for granted. One way we've done this is by um, encouraging our youths to feel that it is their duty to rebel. Very few civilizations ever did that. But we say, you know, your generation is actually supposed to upset ours in some way or another. So my last question is less pithy, but still revealing potentially. If you could commission any artist, dead or alive, to create a work of art just for you, who would it be and why? Oh, well, I've already had that. See, right right over my shoulders, you can see the um, cover for uh, my novel, Sundiver. Okay. Um, You know, I've had had a number of Jim Burns 
paintings based upon my books and Michael Whalen's occasional caricatures. Yours oh, truly. Patrick Farley is my favorite right now, and uh, he's done a bunch of uh, really lovely um, images, and um, maybe I'll include some in this email. Mm, okay. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. This was really fantastic. I enjoyed, I enjoyed this chat quite a bit. Well, well, all right. Whew. Quite the far-reaching discussion to consider for sure. Everything from the modern GOP to Pericles' funeral oration, science fiction, speculative futures, sports, and all with a healthy dose of self-deprecating humor. I think of the many quotes in that interview, the one that will stick with me the most is, criticism is the only antidote to error and delusion. I think that speaks to the importance of openness and humility. It connects really well with the tradition of critique in design as an important way to improve. I'm really looking forward to more far-reaching explorations of possible speculative pasts, presents, and futures with David at Interaction 21. Join us next time when we'll be speaking with Webster, a Quebec-based hip-hop artist, historian, and anti-racist activist. Our guest this episode was David Brin. Our interviewer was Poppy Guthrie. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Peter Last. I'm your host, Alexi Morin. The music is by New Tendencies. You can find their socials in the show notes. Our thanks go out to them for letting us use it. We are a team of volunteers who love what they do and want to make a positive impact on the field of interaction design. Don't miss our upcoming episodes by subscribing to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.